Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 14. I'm going to cover the first 15 verses of that chapter, and we will take up the first half of Jesus' farewell discourse. He's at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He has just fingered Judas as his betrayer. Judas has left, and so now Jesus is talking with the faithful disciples. He has previously, before that, washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas' feet. And so that's the context of where we are. There are no parallel passages in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we will keep it right here in John. We'll start with John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, why would the disciples' hearts perhaps be troubled? Well, as the NIV Study Bible points out, they had just heard disturbing news. Previous chapter, John 13, 33. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I tell you. John 13, 36, three verses later in that chapter. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. In other words, you're going to die. I'm going to die and you're going to die later. This is the way John Gill puts it, quote, Most of all, the loss of Jesus' bodily presence, his speedy departure from them, of which he had given them notice in the preceding chapter, that's what I just read to you, also the manner in which he should be removed from them and the circumstances that should attend the same, so that he should be betrayed by one of them and denied by another. Remember, he's already talked to them about the, the person that I dipped this bread in the, in the bowl with is going to betray me, so he'd already told them about that. And then he's also told him, and this is in the previous chapter, that, Peter, you're going to deny me before the cock crows twice. You're going to deny me three times. And denied by another, Gill continues, likewise the poor and uncomfortable situation they were likely to be left in without any sight or hope of that temporal kingdom being erected, which they had been in expectation of. And also the issue and consequence of all this, that they would be exposed to the hatred and persecutions of men. In other words, they got a tough road to hoe ahead of them. But Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the application of this is, of course, easy and wonderful because everybody's life is full of trouble. My brother-in-law just last night had a heart attack, came with an inch of killing him. I mean, this life is so so full of trouble. You better believe in God and you better also believe in Jesus. And notice that believing in God is believing in Jesus. It's the same thing. You believe in Jesus, you believe in God. There's, there's no distinction. Verse 2 of John 14, Jesus continues, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. Let me read that again. I read it with the wrong emphasis in the wrong place. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If there was no life after death, Jesus would have told his disciples there's no life after death. So just... Have a good time here on this earth with all its persecutions and troubles and sufferings because this is as far as it goes, buddy. He didn't say that. And I'm sure he taught them about heaven. You know, there's not a lot about heaven in the New Testament, but Jesus did say, where I am, there's eternal life. He mentioned that phrase, eternal life, several times right here in the book of John. John chapter 8 is one I recall off the top of my head. But so he's talked about eternal life, life that lasts forever. And here he says, hey, in my father's house, in my father's temple, the place where the father lives is a temple. There are many dwelling places. In other words, there's lots of rooms up there, lots of residences for lots of Christians. That's basically what he's saying. And Jesus has said, I'm going away, going away to heaven to prepare that house, to get it ready for you, because you're going to come join me. 
Jesus' focus was not on this earth. Now, this earth was important to him. Of course, he came down to this earth. He did his ministry on this earth. He prepared his disciples and left them behind on this earth in order to establish the church on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He told his disciples to pray. So, of course, this earth is extremely important, and God intends to redeem it. I'm not trying to be a super spiritual mystic. However, I will say this. Jesus did focus on heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. So let's rejoice in that fact that our this earth is not our home. The form of this world is passing away. I'm sure Paul was talking about the Jewish order that was passing away. But whatever order you're living in, whatever jurisdiction you're living in is passing away. It will not last. Read history. Nothing ever lasts. No empire ever lasts. Nothing. Your family won't last. You're going to get old and die. Your home won't last. It's either going to get repossessed. It's going to fall down with termites. Nothing in this world is permanent. And even if it was, you're not because I guarantee you, you're going to die. So let's focus on where we're ending up in a, to use a metaphor here that Jesus used, in a mansion in heaven, in a wonderful dwelling place, whatever it's like. Now, talking about heaven at this point would help get the disciples' disappointed minds off of the secular kingdom that they'd vainly hoped for. Remember, they're constantly talking about who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of you and your kingdom, and they're thinking about, ooh, all that money, all that power, all that leisure, won't have to work anymore, won't have to deal with those nasty germ, uh, na- nasty, not German, excuse me, nasty Romans anymore. And Jesus said, no, it's not going to be like that. You're going to have a lot of persecution coming on your head. When Jesus says, I would have told you if there was no place for you in heaven, what he's saying is, look, if the good news of heaven weren't true, I would have prepared you for the bad news. I would have said, look, now, there's no life after death, so I just want to tell you now, I'm sorry, but this life is it. No, he didn't say that. There is life after death. It's amazing to me. I've read a lot of philosophy these days, or history of philosophy, and it is amazing to me how many people who aren't even Christians cannot get rid of the idea of life after death. They talk about God or the absolute or whatever. You know, they got all kind of weird ideas of who God is. They don't know the personal Yahweh, but they still believe in life after death. If you look at Wikipedia and just and, and check how many people believe in life after death, it's a huge majority of people on this earth. Of course, most of them are deceived about the quality of that life because a lot of them are going to hell. They don't believe in hell, but they do believe in life after death. But Jesus told him, hey, you want to see the, live in the Father's mansion? Believe in, believe in him. John 14, verse 3. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am you may be also. In other words, so that in order that you might be in heaven where I am, I'm going to come back for you. Well, what does come back mean? Now, as the NIV Study Bible points out, Jesus came back in many ways, or he can come back in many ways. The second advent at the end of time, he could be referring to that. I will come back at the end of the world and take you into my into your heavenly home. NIV study Bible and John Gill say this is the primary reference. Or John Gill and Jameson Vossett Brown say in the secondary sense, it could refer to the individual Christian's death. In other words, Jesus will come back and receive you when you die. I'm going to receive you and escort you into heaven. Well, that's nice, and Jesus does do that. But I think what he was mainly referring to, primarily referring to, not the second advent, in my humble opinion, but he's referring to his post-resurrection appearances. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I, hey, I'm coming back, and, I, and you're going to see me again. I'm going to walk into that room that you're going to be staying in on Resurrection Sunday and the Sunday after that, and you're going to see me again. I'm going to come back and give you all kinds of encouragement and hope so that you will know that you will end up in your father's home at the end. 
Again, that's not exactly clear what Jesus meant when he said he was coming back, but he is coming back. He will receive us into our heavenly home. John 14, 4 through 5. You know the way to where I'm going, Lord. Excuse me. Jesus said this. You know the way to where I'm going. Jesus assumes that the disciples know how to get there. In other words, by dying. Verse 5. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, Again, Thomas did not interpret Jesus' words spiritually. This is, of course, according to the apostolic, the the bad pattern of the apostles. When Jesus would talk about something spiritual, they'd immediately take it literally. For example, the leaven of the Pharisees. For example, living water with the uh, woman at the Samaritan well. And on and on and on. And here's another example right here. How are we going to get there? Thinking of some geographical place. So Doubting Thomas strikes again or he this is actually before his famous speech in the apostles home after the resurrection when he says unless i see the nail scars in his hands i won't believe in him doubt in thomas we forget though that thomas finally did profess faith in christ and he went to india and got a lot of people saved and sent them to heaven so you know we always remember the bad stuff don't we call him doubt in thomas he doubted for a while but he wasn't at the end he wasn't doubting thomas now here's a question it seems that Thomas should have known. Jesus had just told them that he was going to his father's house. I mean, how is he going to interpret that except, I'm going to go to heaven where the, where the father lives. What else could he mean but heaven? John Gill speculates the answer to this, quote, They might have known from some expressions of his that the way to his father's house lay through sufferings and death, in which way they also were to follow him to his kingdom and glory. And so that John Gill is pointing, saying the same thing. Thomas probably should have known that what Jesus was talking about. You know, what did Jesus just previously say right there as he was coming down to Jerusalem? He says, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross. If you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross and follow him to the death. And where the master goes, the servant must follow. And I'm going down to Jerusalem to get killed. So you got to come down here and get killed with me too. And so forth. And remember up there at Bethsaida in the Galilean ministry, Jesus just openly told him, I had to go down to Jerusalem where evil people are going to kill me. And Peter said, no, no, don't go down there. You can't do that. And Jesus said, get behind me, say. So Jesus all along the way was telling them that he was going to die. He was preparing his disciples. And here at the very end, they still don't believe. They still can't understand. They're waiting for that messianic kingdom, the power and the glory. Adam Clark says Thomas must have been thinking that Jesus was going somewhere geographically. Where are you going? We want to go too. He did not know what was about to happen. John fourteen six through 8 Jesus told him, told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Now notice Jesus told them, I am, told, uh, doubting Thomas, told Thomas, I am the way. He did not say, I am a way. As the NIV study Bible and John Gill correctly point out, he is the only way to the Father. Acts 4.12, this is Luke writing, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. That was a preaching of one of the apostles. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name that you can get saved by. Christianity is an exclusive religion. We don't believe that there's... Ten ways to get to heaven through Buddha and through Allah and through Muhammad and all that nonsense. You believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus and you make your bed and you lie in it if you don't believe in him. 
Now, when Jesus says, I am the way, that phrase was picked up in the early church. Three places it's mentioned in Acts. It refers to the church following the way, the way of Jesus. Acts 9.2, this is referring to Paul, requested letters from him to the synagogues. I think that's from the chief priest to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So early on, Paul, before he was saved, was persecuting people who were following the way. Acts 19.9, but when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, capital W-H, Holman Christian Study Bible has it, slandering the way, in front of the crowd he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This was an emphasis on the third journey, referring to Paul. And then same chapter, Acts 19.23, during that time there was a major disturbance about the way. Now, unfortunately, there's a cult called the way, that I ran into when I was in college. I hadn't heard about them in 20, 30, 40 years. I wouldn't be surprised if they're still out there. No, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Don't mess with a cult called the way. But the church itself was called the way. So Jesus says, I am the way. That means you follow the path, the way, and you end up in heaven. You end up in your father's house. You end up living in your father's mansion in heaven. And to do that, the way is Jesus. There ain't no other way to get there. You got to follow Jesus to get there. And Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, this is a key emphasis in the Gospel of John, as the NIV Study Bible says. Let me start, let me read you a scripture at the beginning of John, in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as, as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of truth. What is truth, Pilate asked? Well, he's getting ready to kill him. Truth is Jesus. That's where you get truth. You want to answer all these dumb philosophical questions? I read something the other day that said that that Aquinas really had it right because he just assumed that everything he saw was real. But ever since Aquinas, that all philosophy seemed to be concerned about was trying to, to prove the things outside of one's own head actually existed, which is absolute stupidity. All these high-powered philosophers with all their brains and all their intellect, they don't know the truth. They don't know nothing. They don't agree with each other. They, they spout absolute nonsense. But Jesus, my friends, is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth as opposed to the law of Moses. The law of Moses, of course, gives death. It's truth, but there was death in it because it truly said you were a sinner but gave no life. But Jesus gave the truth along with grace because Jesus was full of grace and truth. He says the truth is you're a sinner and here's the grace. I can forgive you for it. Moses says here's the truth. You're a sinner and you're going to die for it. Big difference. Now notice in verse 7, Jesus said, if you know me... You will also know my Father. Notice there's no distinction, really, between, well, there's a distinction in the persons. There's, a, there's the Son and there's the Father. But as far as divinity is concerned, as, as far as to who's God, you know Jesus, you know the Father. You want to know who God is? Know Jesus. Jesus came down here and lived a life for you and me to understand what it's like to live in a world of sin. If you want to know how to react to this world of sin, you want to know how God would react, look at Jesus. That's all you got to do. You know Jesus, you know the Father. God himself is way out there. He's transcendent. He's glory. He's mightiest. He's awesome. He's fearful. He scares me to even think about how powerful he is and how big he is and how small I am. But And I can't figure him out. But hey, I can look at Jesus and I can look at him in his humanity and I can look at Jesus in his divinity and I can say, wow, that's not only who God is, that's how God created human beings to be, and I want to be like that as much as possible, and one day I will as I go through my sanctification process and attain to glorification after I die. Jesus said, you know me, you know the Father. 
in John 10, verse 30, several chapters past, he said, the Father and I are one. He said that all the time. I think he said that in John chapter 5 also. It's everywhere. He constantly identifies himself with the Father. The Pharisees were right, correctly. They were completely correct when they knew, when they saw that Jesus was claiming divinity. That's why they tried to kill him, because not because he was not because they thought he was mistaken as claiming divinity, is because they knew that he specifically and directly was claiming divinity, and he was. There's no no way to deny it. That's why these dumb-headed liberals who say, well, he's just a good teacher, he's just a, a humanitarian that will show us the way, and he leads little old ladies across the street, and he does good works. But he's not God. He's just one of many prophets. There are many ways to go to heaven. Biggest bunch of horse manure that's ever been distributed amongst people. Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. We were talking about truth. And then he says, he is the life. Jesus is the author and the giver of life, both of natural life. If it wasn't with Jesus, you wouldn't be here physically. He's the author of spiritual life. If you're a Christian and have been born again, he's given you eternal life, spiritual life, a life that can commune with our spiritual heavenly father. And he's also given you eternal life, a life that will never die. This is, of course, in opposition to the law. As John Gill points out, the Jews had a notion that life came through the law. No, it doesn't. Grace and truth come through Jesus. Death comes through the law. Now, in verse 7, Jesus said, From now on you do know him. Some people say you can translate that as from now on you will know him, referring to Pentecost, or it could be referred to the fact that you know the Father now because you know Jesus now because I'm standing in front of you guys. And you know you know me, so therefore you know the Father. And I think that's what it is. I don't think it's referring to Pentecost. I think it's referring to him in his incarnate state. Right there, you know the Father because you've seen Jesus. You know him and have seen him. How can you see God who's the Spirit? Because you're seeing Jesus who is in his incarnate flesh. Verse 8, Lord said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. This is very similar to Moses' demand in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. This referred to when... Moses was in front of the tent of meeting, and he said, Please let me see your glory. Then Moses said, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Please let me see your glory. That's, of course, when God said, You don't see my glory, you're not going to live. But when we look at Jesus, we see God's glory veiled, if you will, by Jesus' incarnate flesh, and so we don't die when we see Jesus. We see his humanity on the outside, so we don't die. But at any rate, Philip got excited about that he's you know he's been following jesus around seeing all these miracles and what does he say hey show us the father hey i'd like to see the father <laughs> well how's jesus going to answer that verses 9 through 11 john chapter 14 jesus said to him have i been among you all this time without your knowing me philip the one who has sent me has seen excuse me the one who has seen me has seen the father you want to see the father look at me jesus continues how can you say show us the father don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, and in means in union with. Don't you know that I'm in union with the Father and the Father is in union with me? There's a close connection between the two. There is a distinction. There is a difference, but there is also close unity. The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. So Jesus is saying, look, I speak, the Father speaks. I do a miracle, the Father does a miracle. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that I am in union with the Father and the Father is in union with me. Believe me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. In other words, believe my words when I tell you. But if, you can't, if that's too hard for you to believe my words when I say that I am the Father and 
I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If that's too hard for you, well, then look at all the miracles I did. Believe because of the works. Now, let's talk about works. Now, we know that Jesus would not do works to unbelieving people. Like in Luke 13, they kept saying, show us a sign, show us a sign. They'd seen all these miracles. they got to have a sign from heaven they asked for, a particular type of sign, a messianic sign. Show us a sign. Jesus said, I'm not going to show you guys a sign except the sign of Jonah, who got resurrected from that fish in three days like I'm going to do. Okay, he didn't show them signs. He didn't do miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because of their nasty, unbelieving attitude. He's not going to throw his pearls before swine. However, Jesus loved to do works for people who might believe. The Bible is full of works. John, the, the Gospel of John constantly talks about works. Works are a good thing, and Jesus appeals to those works. He says, look, Philip, look at all the miracles I did. I want you to believe. So miracles are a good thing. If they attract people who might believe in Jesus, they're a bad thing if people are trying to do them to, because it's a circus act or if they're trying to do them like like occult people do miracles because they like the sense of power and that kind of thing. No, the works are bad then, but in general, when works are an evangelistic tool, they're good things. What does John say in John 20, verse 30 through 31? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what is the purpose of all those signs that weren't recorded? so that the readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. He did those signs in the presence of the disciples, the same disciples that Jesus is now talking to, and say, look at here. If you don't believe me, Philip, believe the works that I do, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John continues in John 20, verse 31, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the signs were, to direct, were signposts that pointed people to heaven. They were signposts that pointed people to heaven. They were a good thing. They were not a bad thing. I say this because so often you hear cessationists say, oh, you know, you're focusing too much on miracles. Miracles are no good. It's just the teaching that counts miracles. Ah, poo, poo. All right for that. It's all right for the apostles to do miracles. That's 2,000 years ago. But miracles today, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We might get overbalanced. Well, they're crypto-deists who say that. Think God's up in heaven, never does anything down here in the life of his people. Maybe providentially, but not miraculously. Oh, no, God won't do that. John 10, verse 37, if I'm not doing my Father's works, Jesus said, don't believe me. Now, now he's talking to non-believing people now, the Pharisees. If I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus used the works there to say, hey, you Pharisee, you don't believe in me? Well, look at the works I'm doing. <laughs> Of course, that doesn't violate his casting his pearl before swine because when he was doing the works, he was doing them for believing people, and the Pharisees heard about it. You know, he couldn't keep it from the Pharisees. He tried a lot of times to say, hey, don't tell anybody. But, you know, the Pharisees inevitably saw the works. He wasn't deliberately casting his pearls before swine. But he did say, look, you having trouble believing me that I'm the Messiah? Look at the works I'm doing. So this works thing, that's a big, big deal. John is all about testimony, credible testimony. In fact, what, is, what, are, what are the the theologians and Bible scholars always say about the first seven miracles in the book of John? These are the first signs that he did. The first signs, the first sign being the miracle in Cana, changing of the water and the wine at Cana. So anyway, Jesus said, gives Philip a lesson in discipleship. Hey, Philip, you want to see the Father? Look at me and look at all the miracles I'm doing. John 14, verse 12. Jesus continues, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. See, Jesus is still talking about works, and he's talking about what his apostles can do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, what's the because there? 
How is going to the Father going to help the disciples do greater works? Because if Jesus goes to the Father, then he will be able to pour forth the Holy Spirit upon them at Pentecost, which he's going to talk about them in the next audio, in the last half of the chapter here. But what he's saying is, I'm going to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and then you can do greater works than I did. Now, here's the next question. Who's going to do those greater works? Jesus said, the one who believes in me. Now, does that mean any believer? John Gill denies that. I think he's wrong. Does it mean only the apostles? John Gill affirms that. This is what cessationists love to do. See, they say whenever somebody's doing a miracle, it's only the apostles. We can't let Christians do that. I submit to you that is an absurd proposition. I don't see any qualification on one. I assure you, the one who believes in me. Where does that say anything? The one who believes in me, if he's an apostle, will also do the works that I do. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that. That is a man-made theological pile of doodly squat that robs the church of miraculous power, which we need in order to point people to heaven, to do miracles as signposts to point people to heaven, so that if people do not believe in our words, they will believe in the works of Jesus. If they don't believe us when we give, us, give people Jesus' words, maybe they'll believe if they see Jesus' works. Now, the next question is, is how can disciples of Jesus do greater works, whether it's apostles or just ordinary Christians, either one, how can they do greater works than Jesus did? Well, here's the first option. John Gill denies this option, but he reports this opinion that it refers to greater miracles in their nature, in their kind. In other words, a miracle that's greater than what Jesus did. Now, immediately there's a problem there because Jesus did resurrections from the dead. How are you going to beat that? I don't think that's what Jesus meant, to be frank with you. Although I do believe that people have risen people from the dead. I talked to a a woman, or I I shouldn't say I talked to her because she was speaking in Chinese through an interpreter, but on the border of Liaoning province in North Korea, she had a little 12-year-old kid there who had been brain dead. The brain waves were flat on the machine when they took her into Liaoning to get to the hospital, and and they prayed, and beep, 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 it came back. You say, oh, well, you know. Yeah, it was a near-death experience. Okay, but bringing people back to life is pretty big, but uh, Jesus said, uh, and he did those kind of miracles. He made people to talk that couldn't talk and to see that couldn't see, but I've heard of miracles. There was one at my seminary. Somebody was seeing through a gouged-out eyeball socket where his eyeball was missing at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He, uh, so, you know, those are big miracles. Big miracles have been done today. So how could Jesus say you're going to do bigger miracles even than Jesus did? Because even with seeing through an eyeball, that's not any bigger bigger miracle than what Jesus did. Well, here's some possibilities. This is from Adam Clark. Peter healed with his shadow. Acts 5.15, as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. I've never heard of anybody today in the modern church doing something like that. Paul healed with his handkerchief, Acts 19.12, so that even face claws or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Healing people with a handkerchief. Peter struck people dead with a word, Acts 5.5, talking about Ananias and Sapphira. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. And then verse 9 and 10, Then Peter said to her, this is the Sapphira, his wife, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. Well, that's a pretty big miracle. 
Paul struck Elamus on the island on Paphos on Cyprus, blind with the word, Acts 13 and 11. Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. Suddenly a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So, so those are pretty big miracles. But still, can you say those miracles as big as they are were bigger than what Jesus did? I don't think so. So I don't think the option, that's just my opinion, I don't think the greater miracles means greater in kind. I think it means greater in number. Now, John Gill agrees with this. Adam Clark mentions this. John Gill affirms it. I say because the church is spread all over the world and Christians are full of the Holy Spirit and they're praying for miracles, well then that means greater works are going to be done all over the world. Hebrews 2.4, at the same time God also testified by signs and wonders various miracles and distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. And notice that does not say that the apostles were confirmed by signs and wonders. It was God's word. Well, you have to look at the previous verse to see it's God's word is being confirmed by signs and wonders, not apostles. So anybody can do signs and wonders to test Jesus's word. Here's another option, greater how, because a conversion is a greater miracle than physical healings. Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirm that. Gill and Clark mention it. The problem with that view is that when Jesus talks about works, he's always referring to miracles in the strict sense, as far as I can tell. You can tell from the context of what we've just been reading. He's talking about miracles, 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 miracles. He's not talking about conversions. So that doesn't fit the, doesn't fit the context, I do not believe. So Jesus has gotten on to talking about going to heaven. Then he's going to talk about because I'm going to heaven, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And because you, then you're going to get to do works. Then you're going to get to see the, that the works of Je- that Jesus is true because of the works, and then you're going to get to see the Father because once you see the Father, you see me. All that goes together. Verse 13 and verse 14, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, of course, this is talking about the greater works, and I tell you, this includes healing. You know, just the other day, I got an email about some guy that was in terrible straits in the hospital. He was just on the verge of dying. I didn't know who he was, but some people in my church knew him and sent out this email. And by the time I read the follow-up email, and these people are, are I don't know if they're cessationists, but they're uh, reform types, you know, tend to not believe in miraculous healings, tend to listen to John MacArthur sometimes and talk about, char- they, they use the word charismatic as if it's a pejorative as if it's a curse word, but even they, they prayed for this fellow, and I don't remember the details, but there's no question he should, he, naturally speaking, he should be dead now, but he didn't. He recovered mir- nothing short of miraculously, and I thought, well, that's great, and it was very encouraging. It's great that people who don't believe in healing pray for healing and see people get healed. Whatever you ask in my name, of course, this assumes that it's in the will of the Father. I think that should be obvious, but some people, you know, Oh, I want to get rich and have a Rolex watch and a Mercedes-Benz. I'll ask it in my name. No. Whatever you ask in my name and the will of the Father, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And by the way, if you ask for something that's not going to glorify the Father and not going to glorify the Son, not going to glorify the Father through the Son, if you ask for something like that, he ain't going to give it to you. Oh, God, I wish I had a, a, I wish I could have three girlfriends on the side. No, that's not going to glorify God. He's not going to answer that prayer. And then he says, if you ask me anything in my name, again, anything in my will, if you ask me, I will do it. We need to, This is a great verse when you feel like God ain't listening to you. Just remind him what he said, if you ask me anything. And he's not just talking to his apostles, folks. He's talking to every Christian. You know, he's talking to apostles, but you can apply that to yourself, unless you're a cessationist. 
You can apply it to yourself. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, you know, the question often comes up, can we pray to Jesus? I pray to Jesus all the time. And just Wednesday night, we had a theology night at my house. And somebody brought that up. And I said, you know, I've heard all my life you can pray to Jesus. I've been praying to Jesus. And there was a lot of talk about, yeah, but the pattern says our Father who art in heaven. And and some people would say, well, yeah, but Jesus is God. There's nothing wrong with it. But nobody had any scripture. And I didn't either. And I said, I know it's in there. I know the scripture's in there. I've heard people say it. But I just, 20, 30 years ago, hadn't gotten around to finding it. So I got on the Internet and looked up. Ask the question. That's what's so nice about the internet. Sometimes, most of the time, boom, there's the answer. It was Matt Slick, Carm Ministries. And he said, referred to John 14, 14. If you ask me, Jesus, anything in my name, if you ask me, that means you're asking Jesus personally. So, so uh, yeah, you can pray to Jesus. You can pray to the Holy Spirit, too, although there's no scripture that says you can, because the Holy Spirit's God. I never have done it, but, I mean, it doesn't matter. Pray to the Father, pray to the Son, pray to the Father in the name of the Son. You're praying to the same triune God. Now, whatever you ask in my name, to narrow it down a little bit with the context, that could be assistance in preaching the gospel because they were getting ready to do so. It could be assistance in performance of miracles because they were getting ready to do those miracles. And, of course, it could be both that because miracles were accompanying accompanied the preaching of the gospel, and I submit to you that it should do the same thing today. makes the gospel much more effective. People listen more, and a lot more people get saved. Now, verse 14, Jesus says, If you ask me anything in my name, Jesus is repeating himself. Because at the first of the verse, he says, in verse 13, I should say, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And then he says in verse 14, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He repeats it. Now, some people say that's a textual error. I don't think so. What it is, is just a repetition to strengthen and confirm the faith of the disciples, as John Gill and Jameson Foster and Brown both affirm. I think that's exactly right. So notice he says this twice. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. I remember I got a couple of Chinese student, uh, long-distance uh, Internet Bible students. I've been taking them through the book of Luke, and one of them lost her passport. And it had been lost for months, and she had moved twice. And, oh, my gosh, she was so upset she couldn't go back to see her family because they won't give her another visa to come back because of the trade war. And, oh, she's so miserable and crying. I said, well, I don't know what to say. You just got to pray about it. And, frankly, I thought the passport was lost. So I told her, I said, just pray that God will take care of the passport situation. <laughs> Next Bible study. She's smiling and happy. I found my passport. So, so anyway, you know, ask you have not because you do not ask. Who was that, James, that said that? Ask. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What could be more encouraging than that? And then in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, this is one of my favorite verses because I, I see disobe disobedient Christians everywhere who screw up their lives, and it just drives me crazy. It's terrible. People, All people want Jesus' benefits, but they don't want his discipline. They don't want his commands. That's not loving. But Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Why? Because love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. And sure, there are emotions. Let's put it this way. Love is not merely a feeling, not merely an emotion. Love is practice. Love is doing something for people. I used to say this to all these romantic Chinese students I deal with all. I used to deal with all the time, and they were always falling in love. And Oh, I never saw so much chocolate and valentines and stuffed animals and Oh, it's just disgusting. The reason, of course, is Chinese culture is very unromantic. It has been for a long time with matchmakers. They still got matchmakers over there. In fact, my nickname is Maypole, which is a matchmaking woman. 
because uh, I've match made a couple. Uh, I match made somebody over there, and and you know, and they just matchmaking. There's no romance in it, and so now when they're free and they're westernized, they want to talk about romance, and I just ask them all that. So what is it? You feel good? I, those feelings are going to die in six months to a year, probably six months. Question is, you're going to love them. And I also say, do you love somebody because of what they can do for you or what you can do for them? Well, you know what the answer to that is. Everybody's looking for something that will make them happy, which is selfish. And love is the opposite of selfish. Well, if you love Jesus, he will make you happy. And he'll do wonderful things. He just finished saying, I, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it for you. So he'll, he loves you and he'll do anything. But Jesus is saying, you know, I'll do everything for you. But, you know, in response, you need to show your love to me. And you need to show that love by keeping my commands. So it all goes together. You want Jesus to answer your prayers, you better keep his commands. Because he ain't going to just go out and answer prayers willy-nilly to satisfy your selfish lust. What was it, James, that prayed that? You pray for your selfish lust? So love is like faith. It cannot be separated from works. Now, Jesus says, if you love me, that sounds a little bit like there's a chance that people might not love Jesus. His disciples might not love Jesus. John Gill says this should not be interpreted in such a way that Jesus thought they didn't love him. Of course, he knew they loved him. What he's saying is, seeing that you love me, do the following. That's very close to sense, but I know in Greek you can't translate if and since. That, that is an English, that's a, a problem of translation that I still don't really have the answer to because a lot of times you see if in the English and it really sounds like it means sense. But at any rate... Jesus is pointing out that the love for him is going to be followed by obedience to his commands. Adam Clark says, when Jesus says, keep my commandments, he's saying to the disciples, don't be upset that I'm going to die and you can't love me anymore. You can keep loving me by keeping my commandments. Now, to show how serious Jesus was about keeping his commandments, I'm going to read you five scriptures here that say the same thing. John 14:21, which is just six verses later. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. You want to show that you love Jesus? Do what he says. And then the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will also love him and reveal myself to him. John 14, 23 through 24. This is the third time in John chapter 14. This will be in our next audio. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 10, next chapter. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And then in the letters of John, 1 John 2, 5, Whoever keeps, my, keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. God will perfect his love in you. Why? If you keep his commands. This is how we know we're in him. 1 John 5, verses 2 through 3. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. There's a straight definition. 1 John 5. I haven't seen that before. 1 John 5, 3. For this is what love for God is. You want to know what love for God is? You want to define it? John defines it for us right there. 1 John 5, 2, 3. This is what love for God is. Quote, to keep his commands, unquote. Now his commands are not a burden. I'll never remember I was doing a house church conference. This woman who seemed to be sort of arrogant to me was sitting at a table ahead of me and somebody mentioned one of these verses. And there are many of them mentioned about loving Jesus by keeping his commands. And that woman says, I'm not a legalist. I'm tired of legalism. She huffed and puffed and walked out of the room. And I'm thinking, legalism? It's legalism to love Jesus by keeping his commands? That ain't legalism, folks. Legalism is when you keep, keep the traditions of men and you make up laws and put them on top of God's laws. Or legalism is when you think you can keep good laws or bad laws and that makes you right with God. There's a lots of definitions of legalism, but I'll tell you one definition of legalism that ain't any good, and that is keeping Jesus' commands. That's not legalism. That's the love of the Father. 
Q-E-D. Hope you enjoyed this audio. Next audio, we'll take up John 14, verses 16 through 31. We'll finish Jesus' farewell discourse as he promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost. See you then.